So basically a bone stress injury is an overuse injury to the bone. You know, by definition, it's basically a failure of the skeleton to withstand submaximal forces um, that act over a period of time. And so what happens is if the bone cannot keep up with those demands of the sport, so in this case running, um, then it goes into this accelerated remodeling phase in which you get these microfractures that are due to that rate of loading that exceeds the rate of remodeling and it just can't keep up. And as a result, you get a stress reaction or a stress injury as you refer to it, which is not quite necessarily at the stress fracture. It's kind of that stage right before the stress fracture. And so what happens is in order for it to convert into that stress fracture phase, it's when you start getting that coalescence of those microfractures in the bone. And then you can actually start on x-rays and things like that. You can actually see a clear kind of definitive line within the bone. So here's the question, how do runners like us remain active, get stronger, and heal from injuries without being told to stop running and create a healthy life for ourselves so we can continue to hit PRs well into our 40s and 50s? This is the question, and this podcast is the answer. My name is Dr. Dwayne Scotty, physical therapist, running coach, and creator of Spark Physical Therapy, where we help active adults be able to run without aches and pains so you can feel good about yourself again. Welcome to the Healthy Runner Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Healthy Runner Podcast. It's Monday, so we are live within the Healthy Runner Facebook group, and I am here with a true expert in the field of running and all things foot and ankle. We have Dr. Elizabeth Bondi from Northern Illinois, foot and ankle specialist with us today. Welcome, Liz. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to thanks be here. For, thanks for coming on. I'm very, very excited about tonight's talk. So in this episode, everyone, Liz is going to be taking a deep dive on all things stress fractures. And I'm sure she will address some of your other common foot-related pain and topics as well. Liz, let's get started. We all know how important a dynamic warm-up is for running. So tell us where you're from and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm from the Chicagoland area. Um, that's where my practice is. And as you already mentioned, I'm a foot and ankle specialist out in Northern Illinois Foot and Ankle Specialist, which is a larger podiatry group in the Chicagoland area. But I am familiar with all you guys that are out there in Connecticut. I did my residency out there for three years at Yale. So that's kind of how I got in touch with all you awesome runners out there. Um, and so, yeah, so now I'm uh, basically a, a runner and a triathlete and uh, everything else under the sun. Yeah, you actually have a lot under the sun. I did read in your bio. Is it true that you are a two-time NCAA national champion in both basketball and tennis? I am. I went to uh, DePaul University in Indiana and I lucked out. I got on some great teams and uh, had great teammates and players. And yeah, just, you know, happened to, happened to be able to do that. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. And, and it seems like that you are a well-accomplished athlete yourself and you continue to stay busy since you have started your professional career. And it seems that you're doing some coaching with basketball, right? As well yeah. as running yourself and doing some tra training triathlon. Yeah. So, you know, I joined up, there's a friend that I used to play high school with out here um, who played at Duke. She started a basketball academy called OMG. So I help her out and we do some coaching together and, you know, do a lot of running and do a lot of triathlons. Um, obviously I'm sure as a lot of you guys are familiar with every race has gotten canceled. <laughs> so, uh, Thankfully, you had your uh, virtual run uh, to keep me motivated. So yeah, just, you know, you make the best out of the situation you have and just kind of enjoy the process and kind of go from there. But hopefully next year, we'll have some races to actually be able to go to and see everyone with and kind of share and kind of all the excitement around it. No, absolutely. And I think we kind of connected through some mutual friends here in multi-sports academy with team Mossman and the triathletes here in Hamden, Connecticut. So I know a lot of our friends here, and this is where the home of Spark Physical Therapy is within multi-sports academy gym in Hamden. And that's where you did some of your training when you were going through your residency at Yale. 
Yep, so. they're the ones that got me hooked. I uh, never did a triathlon prior to being out there in residency. I met up with Clay. You know, he talked me into it, <laughs> although I don't think I needed much convincing. And then I think, you know, just the great camaraderie within that team and within other teams and I think the triathlon and running community, I think they're just great individuals and fun to fun to be around, fun to work with and compete with, um, always pushing each other. And, you know, at the same time while competing, still supporting each other. And so thanks to them that they, they hooked me. Absolutely. Well, uh, that's good. And it sounds like it's kind of kept you active. And I think that's one of the things I love about running so much. And I find that it is number one, a great outlet for someone like myself, who was like an adult onset runner where I started, you know, when I was 32, but then also I find a lot of athletes like yourself who are collegiate athletes, you know, they do either take up the sport of triathlon or take up running um, as a form because this is their new level of competition, right? Yeah. A lot of the sports, you, you know, there are some leagues that you can do competitively like adult leagues, but there's not a whole lot out there. And running is something that, you know, it doesn't require a team, doesn't require a lot of people. You just get out there, um, go get the training in, and you could still, in normal times without COVID, be able to compete, right, at local yeah, road absolutely. races and challenge yourself to uh, be better. And it kind of gives us that little competitive edge and that little fill that we all uh, need. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So why do you like to uh, work with the uh, running community in your professional yes. career? Yeah, so I... I really like treating runners apart from my own experience. And I think that running in itself is inherently provides a lot of challenges. You know, no runner is the same. Everyone's got different techniques and different biomechanical factors that you have to take into account. So I think it adds a nice element. It's not just, you know, the same thing over and over again. And it's nice. I like working, you know, most of my runners and that they're all, they want to get better. They're going to listen. They want to do what they need to, but I, it sounds funny, but I actually like dealing with, you know, I, and I know myself, you know, we all claim I'm not the best patient in the world either. You know, they all want to just get back and do what they can. And I think, you know, keeping them active, keeping runners running provides a whole and, and, and that mentality provides a whole kind of new level of challenge on how to approach things and a little bit of creativity on kind of how to work with that kind of mentality and, you know, still allow them to do what they they need to do. Um, and I think I can kind of relate to that from my own personal experience with running and dealing with injuries and that. So I think it's fun. Keeps it interesting. No, absolutely. Definitely does. I can agree with that. So let's get into tonight's main topic here. And this is something that I really wanted to bring you on for because it is something that in my clinical career, I have always referred out to someone like yourself to a physician if I suspect that my patient does have a stress reaction or a stress fracture. And I thought it would be really important to be able for us as runners to help identify if we possibly have one of these and know the best course of treatment, as well as how do we prevent these. So that's where we're going to be taking a deep dive into today. So let's start out, Liz. What is a stress reaction or a stress fracture? Sure. So basically a bone stress injury is an overuse injury to the bone. You know, by definition, it's basically a failure of the skeleton to withstand submaximal forces um, that act over a period of time. And so what happens is if the bone cannot keep up with those demands of the sport, so in this case running, um, then it goes into this accelerated remodeling phase in which you get these micro fractures that are due to that rate of loading that exceeds the rate of remodeling and it just can't keep up. And as a result, you get a stress reaction or a stress injury, as you refer to it, which is not quite necessarily at the stress fracture. It's kind of that stage right before the stress fracture. And so what happens is in order to, to convert into that stress fracture phase, it's when you start getting that coalescence of those micro fractures in the bone. And then you can actually start on x-rays and things like that. You can actually see a clear kind of definitive line within the bone. And so from our standpoint, you know, our goal is to try and prevent the progression of that stress reaction into a stress fracture, because that's when you start kind of crossing that line into becoming a lot trickier to treat. And especially with runners like you guys, um, it's really, really important. You know, in my case, being a podiatrist, you know, the foot and ankle accounts for about 55% of stress fractures. Um, and I would say about 35, 36% of them are the metatarsal bones. I have my little model here. So let's see. Oh, yes. Yeah, don't go anywhere without my. I don't go anywhere without my, without my awesome. leg. Um, let's see here. So these long bones in here, those are those metatarsal bones. 
And so those are typically the most common stress fractures that I see um, in general, um, not necessarily just in runners, um, which I'll kind of touch on a little bit later. Um, but I think for you guys, the reason why it's so important to really look at stress fractures in the biomechanics and is that when you guys run, you're looking at about a force or a pressure of up to three to four times your actual body weight when you guys are in that single stance phase. Um, and while that may not be as high as some jumping sports like basketball and that, um, it's the repetitiveness of the running that really has that cumulative effect on the bone and the muscles and the tendons and everything else that really can increase your chances for injury um, in the foot. Nice. Thank you for that explanation. And I love the anatomy. So those of you who are listening to this on the podcast, you're going to have to check out the video version of this either on the Spark Your Training YouTube channel or within our Healthy Runner Facebook group. So you can see um, Dr. Bondi pointing out the metatarsals in the foot. So I'm a big uh, fan of anatomy. So I like to bring on my models as much as I can whenever I do an in-depth yeah. topic like this. So I am loving this right now. So thank you for bringing that. Anytime. Um, <laughs> and so what causes uh, stress fractures? Yeah, so there are a number of risk factors that can contribute to stress fractures. One of the biggest one is a, one is a prior history of a stress fracture. Just that alone leaves you with a six-fold increased risk for another stress fracture. Um, so that's a big one. Another one is early sports specialization. So for those that are, you know, it can be runners or it could just be basketball players and that in general, but Typically, if you're really just focused in on just one sport at a time and not kind of mixing it up and playing other sports or changing up, you know, laterality, um, not just doing a forward and back sport, but doing a side to side sport, you're about a 75% greater risk of a stress fracture alone. Um, and especially in, in kids in that, that, it's been shown that by playing a ball sport, it can decrease your risk of a stress fracture by up to 50%. So even if running is your thing, kind of incorporating in another sport that involves some of that lateral movement, whether it's tennis or basketball or, you know, uh, soccer, anything like that is always great and helpful um, for the bone. Another one is, you know, if you don't incorporate some form of a strength training um, within your regiment. So strength training alone can decrease your risk of just an overuse injury by 50%. So not just stress fractures, any overuse injury. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, that three to four times, you know, your body weight, you know, that is partially meant to be absorbed and, um, you know, absorb some of that force through your core and your glutes. And so if your core and your glutes aren't strong and aren't absorbing that force, it's going straight down to your foot and the foot's taking on a whole lot more weight uh, and force than it really is designed or really should be taking on. Um, so really concentrating on those are really important. Um, and then strength training also helps address any malalignment issues. Um, having symmetry is really important, um, especially with runners. Um, so typically what I tend to look at is if you look at running gait is a really big thing. You know, if you're looking at, you know, having someone analyze it, I think that's great. I don't know, uh, Dwayne, you do those things um, as well. You look at your runners, I know. Um, so I think that's great. And I'm glad that you do that because, you know, we look for hip drop. Hip drop. Um, yes. So basically, you know, indicating, you know, those weak glutes. Uh, another thing is I look for the check mark sign, which is a sign for overstriding, which can increase your risk for pelvic and tibial stress fractures, among other things. Um, we look at knee bend and positioning, your foot, um, you know, the kind of the, what we call dorsiflexion, but it's basically your, um, the angle your foot flexed when you land at that heel contact. Look at your arm swing and your posture and all those things really play a really important role all the way up and down the chain of your body. So even though you're like, oh, you're looking at my hips, who cares? My problem's at my foot. It all connects. Um, so it's really important to address all those. And I think the other two things I really look at, especially from behind, um, are the increased peak rear foot eversion, meaning your foot, the heel bone is out, rolled out, um, and peak hip adduction. So that's adduction. So going in towards the midline of your body. And both of those have been shown to have an increased risk for tibial stress fractures. So all those are really important to look at. And then of course, I always look at if they're a forefoot or a rear foot striker. Um, while I personally don't believe that there's one necessarily right way to do it, I don't think it makes a difference. Um, I think every individual is different, you know, 90 to 95% of runners are rear foot strikers. And I believe that the body essentially will pick the easiest path and the path of least resistance. And so however the body wants to run, that's why we run typically with a rear foot strike. Um, 
that's not a problem, but it does put you at an increased risk for those tibial and pelvic stress fractures at that initial heel contact. But you know, in turn, if you're running more of on the forefoot, it increases your risk for metatarsal fractures and then some other bones in the foot. So it's just a trade-off. You know, that force has to go somewhere. Um, so it's just kind of something to keep in mind. And the only, you know, I don't ever recommend one necessarily foot strike pattern over another, um, unless someone has a particular injury that I think that their strike pattern is contributing to that injury, in which case then I think modifications certainly need to be made at that point. Um, the other thing I look at is stance. So it's really important to look at knee and foot positioning when people are standing, you know, the knees go in, are they out? Um, what are the feet doing? Are they rolled in and pronated? Are they rolled out in what we call supination? Looking at your overall posture, your shoulders, your back, what is your lumbar spine doing? Looking for limb length discrepancies are all really important. And then I think probably the one I do the most, I pretty much do for all my runners and even just weekend warriors, really anyone who comes in with an issue is a single leg squat. Um, so I basically, I have them stand in front of me and I have them do like three repetitive single leg squats and kind of similar to looking at the running gate, I'm looking for your hip drop, your knee position and your foot balance. So as I mentioned before, you know, that hip drop is really looking at weak glutes and core. I look at knee position and then the foot balance is really important for intrinsic and extrinsic foot strength, in which case if you're looking for the difference. So the intrinsic foot muscles are those muscles that originate and insert within the foot. They're like four layers of these tiny little muscles in there um, that people tend to forget about, but are really essential for the stability of the foot. And then the extrinsic foot muscles um, are those kind of global movers, the ones that originate in your leg, in your lower leg, and insert into your foot, and are also really important for dynamic uh, stabilization as well as stability. Um, so right. if somebody's standing and their foot's wobbling all over the place, then just think about when you're running, what is your foot doing and how hard are those muscles and bones and that try having to work to stabilize your foot. So I think those are all really key factors. Also, oh my gosh, hold on, Liz, Liz, yeah. I'm sorry. I I'm need to jump right. in here because, oh my goodness, you are just dropping knowledge bombs left and right right now. So let me just jump in here real quick because I know you probably have a couple of other causative factors. I just need to like reiterate like how much knowledge you're dropping right now. So the first point, can I just go back Please, for, because yeah. you just dropped so many things, sports specialization. So there are a lot of parents who will probably be listening to this mm -hmm. and because our, our audience is pretty much like middle-aged, like adult runners and they have children. Uh, a lot of those folks do have children. And if you're a parent out there, we really haven't talked about this on the podcast yet. So I'm just going to throw my two cents in there. And I totally agree with Liz here that your children should be playing a, like she said, a ball sport or something that makes you go in a different direction laterally. And then I also wind up treating a lot of gymnasts. So we see a lot of the stress fractures in the lumbar spine and spondylolysis. So that's something from repetitive extension of the spine that gymnasts can unfortunately um, wind up getting. So getting your children in different sports, I know a lot of parents are nervous about that because number one, most teams are practicing year round now and you have all these camps, you have all these clinics and you feel like if your child doesn't do it, then they're missing out and the kid next to them is going to advance further and maybe they're not going to get a uh, starting spot. But please listen to Liz. And if you really see any of the great athletes, if, you know, most of the great athletes who have ever, you know, excelled in a certain sport started out as a multi-sport during their youth. So it's really the last decade um, or 15 years that our youth sports have really gone so specialized with doing year round sports. So I would highly recommend that like my daughter was a gymnast and then we got her into volleyball as well. So then she started going down the volleyball route. So that was like a nice thing to switch up the gymnastics that she was doing a different type of sport. So I thought that was a phenomenal point that I think some may have overlooked. I just wanted to highlight that oh, in you. terms of decreasing the risk of uh, stress reactions and too much stress on the bone that basically the bone's not ready for. And then definitely your your point about strength training and protecting the bones is super, super important. We've, we talk a lot about strength training within the Healthy Runner Facebook group, and I drop lots of exercise ideas, especially like for what you said, the glutes and the core. So I absolutely love that as well as I love the fact that you are evaluating your patients with movement and how things have shifted within the medical profession. And I'm sure in the podiatric profession as well um, from earlier routes where it was, let's just look at the foot. 
and how you really talked about looking up the chain. And Liz talked about looking at the hip drop and all the things that you highlighted are all the things that I evaluate on my runners. We take video analysis. And I completely agree that a lot of those running technique errors, whether or not a runner knows about them or doesn't, could possibly lead to those increased forces that you talk about and stress out the bone. So I love the fact that you're not only looking at the foot and ankle, even though that is what you are like super specialized in, right? That's what you're known for. And that you're looking up the chain and looking at the pelvis and looking at the hip. Oh my goodness. So I just needed to highlight some of those, some of those things that you talked about. And then you talked about some of the kind of biomechanics. And then do you have some other causative factors for stress reactions or stress oh, factors? Because yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think I saw in your bio as well, like you also have a passion for nutrition as well. Is that right? Yeah, And I don't, you know, I don't have a, a nutrition degree or anything like that. So I, I kind of, what I, advice I give out is more of a broad range. And then if it's someone, in, in, you know, an ultra runner, someone who's having kind of recurrent stress fractures, then I refer out to a nutrition. Um, but I think just the overall, and I'll certainly touch on that too. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up as well. So I'll definitely get on that. That's actually, that's actually a perfect tie-in to, to part of my next, uh, nice. awesome. So good job. Um, so yeah, so that next factor is I'm kind of touching on is the female is, uh, the biological factors. And with that comes the female athlete triad, which is an ever so famous uh, triad, um, which involves three different components. So that first component is that low energy availability, and that can be with or without an eating disorder. Um, and typically when I talk about this component of it, um, I feel like I have to address something that's called red S syndrome, meaning, meaning relative energy deficiency in sport, because I think it's really important, not just for adolescent females, this is Kind of an all-around, you know, adolescent, you know, middle-aged, wherever you're at um, as an athlete, I think this is really important. And essentially what it is, is when you're not consuming enough calories to meet your everyday daily demands. So not even just, we're not even just talking about going for a run, we're talking about just overall under eating calories just for your day-to-day -day life. And so this has a real negative impact on your overall performance anyways. Um, so this can decrease your endurance, it can decrease your muscle strength, your coordination, your concentration, it certainly increases your risk for injury. It can also lead to some depression and irritability. Um, so these also can impact you at job or school or things like that. So you don't, you really want to be careful about this. And then um, I was reading a study and they were looking at kind of some of the other effects in adolescent females about having an inadequate caloric intake. And you're talking about decreased sex hormones. Um, which leads to menstrual dysfunction and reduced bone mass, uh, decreased growth hormones, which also lead to a loss of muscle and decreased bone mass, uh, decreased thyroid hormones, which lead to a suppression of your metabolism, and then an increased stress hormone, which leads to a loss of muscle and decreased bone mass and menstrual dysfunction. So all of those play a really big role in your risk for injury and especially, especially stress fractures. Um, so that's a, a big one I kind of harp on people with and making sure that they're eating enough. And kind of since we're on that topic, you know, making sure you guys are eating before you work out. So not just, you know, there's this whole thing going around about not eating before you go for a run and trying to train your body to burn fat. Um, not, not true. If you don't eat before a run, your body, you can't really choose where that fat comes from. You can't be like, ah, I think it'd be nice if it would come from my abdomen. So I think we'll go that route. Um, the first place it comes from is your muscles. And so that pulls straight out of your muscles and that'll impact your strength and your endurance. Um, so just kind of got off on a little tangent there, but I wanted to throw that in um, while I was talking about it. The second component of a female athlete triad is amenorrhea. amenorrhea. Um, and so adolescent females with amenorrhea uh, meaning no, uh, no menstrual cycle or period, um, are two times more likely to get a fracture. And they tend to have a lower bone mineral density and then decreased cortical, cortical thickness of the bone. And that cortical thickness is that outer layer of the bone. Um, so you have kind of that outer hard shell um, and then that inner, uh, the bone marrow and the trabecular bone. Um, but that outer layer tends to be a little bit thinner um, in those individuals. And then finally, osteoporosis. Um, so which we kind of touched on with the bone mineral density. Um, also individuals with a bone with a BMI of less than 19 are at a higher risk factor. Um, we did talk already about the low uh, bone mineral density. There was a study that looked at adolescent males 
um, and what additional risk factors were involved if they had low bone mineral density. And those include um, those men that ran more than 30 miles a week, already had history of stress fractures, were less than 85% of their expected um, body weight and had less than one serving of calcium a day. Um, so that also can play a role. And then obviously if you're a female, um, if your menstruation is after the age of 15 years old. Um, and the important thing to note about all these biological factors is that their effects are cumulative. So the more of these factors and these uh, factors that you have, the higher your risk. Um, and they actually do have like a risk uh, score that some doctors um, will use to calculate out kind of everyone's individual risk. Um, another risk factor is the type of sport. So in running, um, it's a sport that tends to focus on leanness. Um, and so that can put you at more risk for fractures, in particular the pelvis and the sacrum, because those are more trabecular rich bones. Um, and then generally with runners, you're already looking at you know, low bone mineral density and um, repetitive constant loading every time you impact that ground. So those are kind of where it tends to lean. Um, and then you have those sports that have excessive loading. So like dancers, basketball players, football players. And that's where you tend to see more of the stress fractures in the foot because they tend to impact more of that cortical. Um, the bones in the foot are more cortical rich than trabecular rich, which is that outer layer that I was talking about a little bit earlier. So it tends to require a little bit more loading to really damage um, that structure. Uh, another one is genetics. Um, they just simply contribute to your peak bone mass. So that can just be a genetic component of it. And then tie back into nutrition um, that you mentioned earlier, calcium and vitamin D, biggest things. Um, you know, Studies were looking at adolescent females and those who had an adequate vitamin D intake were 51% less likely to suffer a stress fracture. And then when they looked at women and calcium, those that consumed less than 800 milligrams of calcium a day had six times the rate of stress fractures compared to those that consumed more than 1500 milligrams a day, which is a little bit on the high end of the spectrum, but nonetheless, um, there it is. Um, and when I talk about vitamin D and calcium, I'm generally saying vitamin D, you know, on the whole, I, I feel like most people tend to need to supplement that um, with vitamin D, um, actually having to take a supplement. But with calcium, I try and get my athletes and anyone to really try and get that through their food. Um, so for example, one cup of skim milk a day has been shown to decrease stress fractures or just regular fracture risk by about 62%. Um, so you can imagine if you're a kid and you're drinking all this milk, you know, that really does have an impact on your bone structure. With calcium intake, is that something that you can catch up on? Or is, I guess you kind of alluded to that fact. And I, I think, is it correct that you do want to make sure during the childhood and adolescent years that th those nutritional kind of demands have been met? Yeah, so generally speaking with calcium, kind of between those ages of nine and 18, your calcium requirement is up. Typically you wanna try and be around 1300 milligrams a day. And then once you get past that age, you're looking like 19 to 50, you drop down to about a need of about a thousand milligrams a day. So okay. in that kind of phase, it, it goes down. And then as you get older, so once you tend to, if you're a female over the age of 51 or you're a, any male over the age of 70, then it goes back up a little bit to about 1200 milligrams a day um, as your kind of demands increase um, because of the, the bone density. So it kind of fluctuates a little bit with regards to that. But definitely as a kid, you're gonna need the most amount of calcium. That's when it's really important. Yeah. And so what do you recommend for if, if someone out there is like myself and is non-dairy, um, how do you get some of the vitamin D and calcium recommendations? Do you know, do you have any good recommendations? Yeah. So, I mean, you can still do your supplements. So like I do supplements because I don't really tend to have a lot of dairy anymore. You can still get calcium and a lot of vegetable things like that. Almond, like in my case, I'd use almond milk. Um, a lot. That's kind of my big thing. Whenever I make like protein shakes and that, I just use almond milk and not regular milk. Um, yep. So you can use all those sources. And if you really find like you're having a difficult time finding kind of that source of calcium, you can always use a supplement. But you know, it's always I, I find for anything, whether it's calcium, vitamin D, or any other, you know, any other uh, vitamin or mineral you're trying to get in, to try and get it in through food. Um, especially like your veggies and that and fruits and then um, to try and do that. And fruits, fruits are always great. Whole foods, right? Fruits, veggies. Yes. Mm -hmm. Eating those yeah. whole foods is definitely something that is um, you should 
you should strive for as a runner. And so besides some of those nutritional things, is, is that pretty much, that's a long laundry list of causes of stress yeah. fracture. Is there any others that we didn't touch upon? Yeah, there's a couple and I'll just run through them real quick. I'm not going to, you know, belabor the point, but not getting enough sleep is a big one um, that can decrease your bone mineral density, increase your bone turnover and increase your risk for injury not wearing proper footwear. And when I really talk about this, I just mean the flexibility of the shoe, making sure you're changing out shoes in the appropriate time. You know, like general, I think the, the rule of thumb is like 300 to 500 miles. Uh, generally speaking, with all the new shoes out there with all the foam and that, I generally say to stick closer to 250, 300 mark because that foam starts to flatten and you lose that shock absorption starting around 250. Um, so that's kind of where I tend to lie. Increasing your training too quickly, the training surface, if you're only on a concrete surface, I already talked about limb length discrepancy. If you have foot deformities, so like high arches, low arches, tight Achilles tendons, things like that. And then there are certain medications too that can, can certainly cause that. And then that's it for now. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. That was, that was some great information. So now I think this is this is really, really the reason why I wanted to bring you on here, Liz, is because I know there are many runners out there who are running through pain and they are having some foot pain. And so if I'm a runner, how do I know if I have a stress fracture? Um, and then how does someone like yourself diagnose a stress fracture in the foot? Sure. So typically with a stress fracture, you're going to get kind of that kind of like point tenderness on a bone per se. Um, with other injuries, it tends the pain tends to be a little bit more diffuse um, and not as specific of a location. Most of my my um, patients that come in with stress fracture the back, it hurts, you know, like right there, and they can kind of pinpoint that spot. Um, a lot of times, people use like a tuning fork um, or use like a little bit of percussion, and they can have pain um, with that. Typically, it's pain that'll worsen with activity um, as well as following following the activity. Um, and that kind of pain is typically a little bit more acute. So you're not going to see, typically if it's a stress fracture, although not all cases, because I do see kind of <laughs> the rare, typically it's going to be more acute. So, you know, somebody will come and say, oh, I've had pain, you know, it's been going and getting worse for the past three to four weeks. Typically they're not going to come in and say, oh, I've had this pain for the past year or two. Um, so that's a pretty good indication. Sometimes patients will have redness or bruising and some swelling over that particular area. Um, so those are all things to kind of look out for, um, when it comes to us, you know, so we can, depending on the pain and how severe it is, sometimes we have to do something called a hop test where you jump on one foot and that'll elicit some pain. Um, if we're worried about the heel bone, we can do a squeeze test where you squeeze the heel bone together and they can elicit pain. Um, I don't do this cause I don't, I'm not a foot and I'm just foot and ankle, but there's a fulcrum test that you can test for a stress fracture of your femur. Um, if we're looking at those metatarsals again, there's something called the piano test and yeah, I'll bring out my handy model again. Um, yes. yeah. So if you push, let's see, I'm trying to do the best thing. If I push on the bottom of that ball of the foot, whatever bone I'm pushing on. So if I'm pushing up, like, let's say on the second metatarsal here, it'll elicit pain if the stress fracture is back down in here. Um, so I kind of call it the piano key test. Um, and then when it comes to kind of diagnosing the best thing, you know, there's all sorts of different ways. We obviously take x-rays, but when it comes to stress fractures, especially early on, it often doesn't get picked up um, very easily because there's usually about a 14 day lag on x-rays. Um, so we can we still do them, but it, it, just because the x-ray is negative doesn't mean you don't have a stress fracture. There are CT scans and bone scans. Typically I don't do these because they involve a whole lot of radiation. Bone scans I definitely really don't do anymore because I can't do a follow-up test on it because an area will remain hot even months after the bone is healed. Um, so it's not super reliable. I typically do an MRI. Um, and so you just kind of have to still do things with caution. You can still get false positives, especially, you know, let's say someone goes out for a run or, you know, I've seen it where soccer players, they'll think they have a stress fracture and, you know, they don't listen. They go out, they play soccer that morning and then they go get an MRI and their whole foot lights up and they say they have a stress fracture everywhere. Um, so generally speaking, I just make sure that I don't have someone go for a run that morning or play soccer, or play basketball, something like that, just in case they don't want to listen to me and, <laughs> and we'll go do those things because that can impact the MRI to a certain degree as well. Um, so that's typically kind of how I, how I go about that. Yeah. So it, Liz is describing everyone as kind of those signs and symptoms that you might have if you have a stress fracture. And I think one of the things um, that Liz does as well is that localized pain is kind of like, like that cardinal 
you know, sign or feature, but also associated with that rapid increase in activity level. So you might've been a runner who wasn't running much during COVID. And then you're like, you know what, this is the week I'm going to do it. And you go out and you run 20 miles for the week and you literally haven't run in, you know, three months, four months now, then, you know, you're increasing your likelihood of a little too much load to that bone too soon. And then the bone starts to react back at you. Um, so it, would you say that it is usually associated with in the runners that you see a sudden increase in training volume, training load, beginning of a season, that kind of thing? Yeah. And I think that's certainly one of the most common ones, you know, and I think the other common one is biomechanics. You know, a lot of times what I'll see is, um, let's say someone who's had plantar fasciitis for a long period of time, they've started walking on the outside of their foot. They, you know, it's been like that for, you know, over a year and then they go back to running and they didn't work on gait retraining. And now they run on the outside of their foot instead of rolling over the big toe joint. And now the increase of stress is all on the outside of the foot. So even if they grad slowly graduated into running, that bone's not you're supposed to be taking that much force because it's not going through the ball of the foot and the midfoot where it should be. So I think that's another kind of common one that I see too. Yeah, no, great point. And more of a uh, reason to take care of that plantar fasciitis and get some treatment for the plantar fasciitis so you're not compensating and walking and running on the outside of your foot. But even further kind of brings home that point of the whole chain and how everything is connected uh, when you are running. So how long, so let's say we've been diagnosed with a stress fracture. So we got the diagnosis, which again, for most of the runners that I work with, it is never a great diagnosis to give them because it does mean, um, unfortunately, that they do have to stop running. And I'm a big believer in most of our running related injuries. There are ways to modify your running and continue to allow those tissues to heal because activity, movement, exercise actually stimulates healing process. Mm -hmm. However, this is not one of them. And this is why I brought you on because unfortunately you do have to have that conversation with your runners that they do need to stop, but how long do stress fractures actually take to heal? Yeah. So some of it just depends on the location of the stress fracture um, and depends on when it's caught. So the earlier you catch it, um, the better chance you have of shortening that recovery time. Typically you're looking at anywhere from four to eight weeks, um, leaning closer probably to the six to eight week mark um, for most people because it doesn't usually get caught within the first you know, week or two. Usually kind of people wait a little bit, see if it starts going away. And then when it doesn't, then they kind of start trying to treat it themselves. And then when that doesn't help, then they see a foot doctor like four or five weeks later. Um, so generally speaking, I would say it's closer to that six to eight week mark. Um, and like I talked about, it really just depends on the location. There are certain locations that are what we call high risk locations, in which case you definitely need to be non-weight bearing on it. It's not really so much you can just be in a boot and walk in it. Um, these are areas that are generally deemed to have poor blood supply uh, and subject to high biomechanical stresses and tensions. So some of these areas include like the femoral neck, which is real common in runners. Um, anterior tibia being your shin bone, the talus, yeah, bring this guy out again. The talus is that bone right here. I don't know if the reflection is a little bit difficult, but it's sitting right below um, that shin bone. Um, then you have the second metatarsal base. Yeah, let's see. So this little guy right in here. And the reason why this one's already at a little bit of increased risk is you can kind of, maybe you can or can't tell, but it's a little bit more recessed than the rest of the metatarsal bones, especially even the first. And because of that, it's inherently a little bit more rigid than all the other ones. So it's a little bit sub more subject to stress injury. And then the fifth metatarsal. So this is probably the worst one that I see is always this guy right in this little junction right in here. Um, it just doesn't get great blood supply. Um, and typically when there is a fracture there, it has about a 15 to 25% non-union rate, meaning that that bone doesn't fuse and doesn't heal. And then navicular, which is this little guy here. That's typically more common in like a track and field athletes because they're really pushing off that forefoot and it kind of acts like a little bit of like a nutcracker. We kind of call it a nutcracker fracture because it gets kind of jammed in there. But those are all kind of different factors that play a part into how quickly you can kind of get back into the swing of things. All right. So will the majority of stress fractures that you see um, does it require non-weight bearing for a certain period of time or can some get by with doing one of those walking boots 
um, for that four to six or eight week period? Yeah, I would say typically the majority of cases that I see can get away with being in a walking boot for those four to six, eight weeks. Um, and then kind of based on their progression um, can kind of continue to wean themselves out of it. So I'd rather keep them moving because you lose quite a bit of bone mass by, by not putting any weight on the foot just within the first week to two weeks. Um, so I try and keep people walking as much as possible. But I also have, you know, it's also kind of one of those you have to be a little bit careful and it depends on the person you're dealing with because sometimes you put them in a boot and they um, will see it as a chance to, oh, I can still go walk 10 miles because now I'm in a boot and so I can do it. So some of it is a little bit tailored towards the type of patient and um, if they're going to go out and go be crazy and go do a race, with, which I might have done before um, myself um, <laughs> and do a half marathon or a marathon and just bring a boot with you and just think <laughs> of it with it. Um, and I know I'm not the only one out there. So. <laughs> 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 as I do. Um, but yeah, so it, it just depends on some of those things too. Yeah. And what do you use in your decision-making process when that patient comes in for their follow-up, are you taking another set of radiographs, x-rays, or are you just going strictly on symptoms if they're having pain? Yeah, I will do another set of x-rays typically around that kind of four or five week mark because you'll definitely start seeing some calcification kind of form in that bone healing. And then after that, it kind of becomes more of a making sure that there's no distinct fracture lines that are appearing some the new ones. It's not spacing out and getting further apart. Um, and then, then it just becomes symptoms. You know, are they still having pain walking in a boot? If they're not, you know, in order to really get out of it, they need to not have pain for at least two weeks. Um, and really in order to continue to progress through the rehab process. And, you know, and during this process, I, I typically will still send people to, to physical therapy because then they can continue to work on strengthening and mobility um, and they don't get too stiff. So that, that kind of helps with that recovery and getting back to sport. Because that four to eight weeks is just, you're just talking about recovery from healing the bone fracture. You're not even talking about return to sport, which can be longer because now you have to be able to perform all those functional demands without pain. So that's a gradual process too. Yeah. So if you do have a run, so as you can see, this is unfortunately a somewhat long process and a long process before you start running again. Um, so what happens if you have a stubborn runner? who is that person that wants to continue to run through it um, because they have their, you know, they're set high on running a specific race mm -hmm. or a specific distance. What happens if a stress fracture is left untreated? Yeah. So if those get untreated, you're talking about in becoming into a full blown fracture, um, in which case you're looking at probably surgery at that point. Either one, you then need to become non-weight bearing um, or depending on the type of fracture, if it's just not showing any signs of healing or if it's in one of those kind of high risk areas, you're talking about having to go in and clean up the bone and put either plates and or screws in um, and do other things. So then and that can certainly extend that whole process even longer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then even once you do that, where you're putting that hardware in, you really don't know, right? If that person will get back to the same distances they were running. And um, so I would definitely highly encourage those that are listening here to listen to the good doctor here. And, you know, if you are having that pain, especially if, as it's described as Liz is saying, it's very localized, kind of pinpoint specific, one area on your foot, um, stop ignoring it, get it checked out by a medical professional who will evaluate um, your, your foot, your running and get you on the right path, because this is something that you definitely don't want to let go untreated. And then if it is a fracture, can that lead to, can you just speak to, and some may have heard the term like non-union, mm -hmm. um, before, what does that mean? So a non-union means that after a prolonged period of time, the bone is just not healing. It kind of caps itself off at the two ends where it's fractured. And at that point, you have to go in and get rid of that, what we kind of call like that calcification, that calcified bone, kind of that cap that kind of forms over it so that the bone can start healing again. Yeah. So you definitely don't want that guy. So make sure you're, you're listening to your body and getting it evaluated by the appropriate professional, uh, someone like Liz here. So if I do have a stress fracture, 
Are there any specific, you alluded to the fact that you would have your patients typically do therapy um, during this time period of healing. What exercises can I do if I have a stress fracture in my foot? Yeah. So I think, you know, like, again, some of it is location specific, but I think the biggest thing I really try and promote to athletes and my patients out here is deep water running or fluid running. Um, basically it consists of a buoy that goes around your waist and you have kind of a bungee cord that you can tie to a lane line. And you basically just, you have that same motion of running. So you're, you know, you're using those hip flexors, you're using those legs, you're going forward and back, using your arms, working on your posture. Um, and it's really a great way to maintain your fitness. Um, I've seen a lot of the, the individual um, who started this whole fluid running uh, concept um, and, and really promotes it. Um, she was an avid runner and she was getting ready for, hopefully I get the story right. Uh, but she was getting ready for the Chicago marathon. Her whole family was doing it. And it was a really big event for her. And then she ended up with a stress fracture. And it was like six weeks, I think, before the marathon. And she's like, I have to do this. Like, how am I going to do it? So she implemented this, this fluid running. And she was able to run and do it afterwards. And so basically what it does is it helps decrease swelling because of hydrostatic pressure. It provides that multi-directional resistance. And it helps increase blood flow. Um, which can improve your recovery time by upwards of 30%, depending on you know, what the injury is. And it actually burns more than 40% uh, more calories than running in itself. And it's a heart rate base. So if you were to go out and run three miles, whatever your heart rate would be for that three miles in the time. So if it would take you 30 minutes to run those three miles and your heart rate's at 120, then that's what you're gonna maintain while you're doing this. And so that's the kind of concept and then maintain your cardiovascular. Um, I also think that just swimming in general, as long as they're being careful and they're not pushing off the walls, they're not doing flip turns, um, works for me. And then also depending on the injury, um, they can bike. I let them do some stationary biking, not outside though. <laughs> <laughs> just the risk of, uh, yeah, makes falling me so off or yeah, makes me very, very nervous. Um, and Typically, I'll even let them do it, depending if they have to do it in the boot, then they can still do it with their heel in the boot, and that's okay, too. Um, but like I said, some of that's dependent. I think most injuries and stress fractures, you can get away with doing deep water running in that, um, with the exception of maybe on the top of the navicular. Um, that's a fracture I probably can't do because of that plantar flexion, pushing your toes down and pulling back and activating those muscles in that. But um, other than that, those are the three big ones. And then physical therapy, doing strength and isometrics and that. And I think the biggest thing I always caution people is, and I always see a lot of people do is say, oh, well, my stress fracture's on my right, so I'm gonna go start doing some squats, but I'm only gonna put all the weight on my left foot and I'm only gonna do everything on this side. But you start to lose that symmetry again. And I've seen it where people do that and then they end up with a stress fracture elsewhere, like in their other hip or in their sacrum or something like that, as soon as they get back to running because they've been overstressing and now they don't have that muscle uh, symmetry that they had before. So just a word of caution don't go ahead and start over-strengthening the other side while the other one is resting. No, that's a great point. And during this time period, I always like to tell my patients, um, this is an excellent opportunity to kind of wake up and start to utilize some of those hip muscles that you talked about earlier. Um, yeah. Some of those glutes are really doing like your isolation, gluteus medius exercise. So your side hip muscles, your deep external rotators, like those Two, I find often missed in a lot of runners programs from like a traditional strength based program. Um, so really targeting those muscles, um, targeting the hip extensors, so the glute max and making sure those guys are as strong as possible and kicking in firing. So then when you are clear from a doctor like Liz that you are able to start weight bearing, those muscles already know how to fire. They know how to activate. You've strengthened them in what we call a non-weight bearing position. So then when you, you get the clearance, start putting your foot on the ground. Now you can use those muscles as they're used when you're running. So in that kind of what we call closed chain fashion. So that's like a perfect opportunity to, and honestly, a lot of my runners who do have this condition, it's almost like once you get back, they always feel like that side's almost stronger <laughs> than the other side, because now we've really been targeting those small areas that they probably weren't really um, focusing on uh, with their running prior to getting injured. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, but I love the um, water jogging that you brought up and that point as far as the bone goes, like that makes total sense to me and makes sense from a cardiovascular standpoint, as well as even tissue healing standpoint. And it's safe for the bone because you're not loading it. So yeah. I think that's a nice alternative um, for some runners out there who are looking for, and it's a hard workout. Like I've never done it personally, it's but from what I hear is <laughs> it's a hard workout. And it's a nice supplement too. If you're like, you know, you just feel like your body's taking a lot of pounding in general, even if you don't have any injuries, it's kind of nice. You're like, Oh, well, I really just want to run like three days a week outside and do that pounding. And then you can supplement that with the deep water running. So that your body gets a little bit of break, but you know, you still get a little bit of a breather and you know, they have different they have an app that goes through different programs and things like that too. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so really important point here, Liz, is if, because we, we talked about that, if you do have a stress fracture, you are unfortunately not going to be running through it and you are going to need to stop running and allow this bone to heal. But we're all about prevention here on the Healthy Runner podcast and within our Facebook community. So how do we prevent stress fractures um, in the foot from running? Or how do we prevent them from occurring to begin with? Sure. So I think some of them, you know, I'll kind of just recap on some of the ones we've already talked about, which is, you know, when you, you know, reiterated is making sure that you're participating in multiple activities and multiple sports, incorporating strength training, um, incorporating vitamin D and calcium, um, you know, and looking at the running gates um, and having someone look at your running gate to kind of establish those weaknesses, um, depending on your foot structure and orthotic can come in handy. Um, typically, if you have a pretty normal foot structure, I try and get people out of orthotics as quickly as possible. Um, so I want your foot to be able to do its own work and build those intrinsic foot muscles. But some people have, you know, biomechanical issues of really flat feet, really high arches, and you just, you have to have the orthotics. There's no amount of intrinsic or extrinsic strengthening um, that's really going to um, help support the arch and prevent those injuries. Um, sometimes for my higher risk patients and endurance athletes, I think it's a good idea just to get a, a regular, just a DEXA scan to measure, to assess that bone mineral density um, and kind of see what your risk is and just kind of be aware. Um, I think a big one that I think a lot of, especially endurance athletes and runners and that really miss out on uh, is the importance of recovery. So you have to remember that the bone is a dynamic tissue and it will initially increase that bone turnover and you'll lose the density um, with that increased stress when you go out for a run. But in response to that, it'll eventually increase in density over time in order to strengthen and remodel itself. And so kind of like what I, I stated earlier is that, you know, the application of too much that stress over a short period of time without sufficient time and recovery, um, the bone can't remodel. And then you start leading to that stress fracture and the bone weakens again. Um, so, you know, for example, if you're running day after day and you're not taking those days off and doing your recovery, then the bone doesn't have a chance to repair itself. And then it weakens. And that's when you start worrying about fractures and you're really negating all that hard work that you're really putting in. Um, cause it also impacts your muscles in that. So I think that's a, a really big component of it is making sure that you're taking the days off and giving your body a chance to just take a break as well as your brain, because your brain needs that break too, from the stress hormones. The other one is paying attention to what you're wearing outside of running and outside of whatever your activity is. So for example, for women, um, everyone, they all like to wear high heels. Um, even I like to occasionally. Um, but you're, you know, if you're, talking about heavy, having a high risk for like a metatarsal stress fracture that we talked about a lot, just a two and a half inch heel can lead to a 75% increase in your forefoot pressure. Um, and it also tighten up your calf muscles. So when you go for that run, that'll mess with your overall running mechanics because your calf's going to be really tight. For both men and women wearing kind of a more pointed toe shoe, so kind of like the Oxfords, um, for example, those because they squish your toes together, together will actually destabilize your foot and weaken and lengthen some of those intrinsic foot muscles that are important for foot stabilization. So really paying attention to kind of what you're wearing on the day-to-day, -day, not just when you're running. So if you're gonna put all that time and energy in picking out the right running shoe, and then you're just gonna put on whatever during the day, it's not gonna do you a whole lot of good in the long run. And then uh, finally, I think the most important for me and the one I, I tend to emphasize the most when it comes to injury prevention in general is mobility. Um, especially as we age, because as we age, the tissues tend to lose elasticity. And with a lack of mobility, you're talking about increasing your risk for injury due to change in your running form. It can increase the strain on your joints and your muscles. 
Um, so it's really important. And I think, you know, we talked on a little bit, HIP is probably one of the most important aspects of it, especially now with COVID, everyone's been sitting on the couch or sitting in front of the computer a lot more. When that happens, you start getting tight hip flexors. And when you have those tight hip flexors, your low back starts to arch, your glutes start to deactivate or they're inactive um, and they weaken and then your hamstrings shorten and weaken. And what happens is that thigh bone, when you start, when you have that uh, tight hip flexor, your thigh bone will rotate inwards and your knees will go in and then your foot pronates and rolls in. So just the tight hip flexors impact all the way down your leg um, and can cause a lot of problems both with your knees, your back, um, as well as your feet. So I think the, the hips are really, really important. Um, another one is that I think people tend to forget about is ankle mobility. You know, it's really important because if you don't have good ankle mobility, you have decreased shock absorption, it changes the alignment of your foot, and it can shift the loads to other, to other parts of your foot, leading to these stress injuries, and among other things. Um, and so that adequate ankle mobility really is what allows that foot to get behind your hips when it's extended, and you need it for effective toe-off. And without this, as a runner, it changes the way you store and release elastic energy. So you really want that to be efficient. Um, and then another one that in my mind is really important is the big toe joint and your midfoot. So the midfoot's important because it's really, you know, if you're running on uneven terrain, especially out um, by you guys, you have a lot of great trails out there, your foot needs to be able to adapt to that surface. So you're having good midfoot mobility is really important to that. So it's not as rigid, but the first, the big toe joint is really, really important because it's responsible for about 85% of the control of your foot. And so if you're not able to roll through that forefoot and your big toe, you lose all that support and all that stability, which, which can lead to further injury up your leg um, and it'll shorten your push off. And I think uh, there's a, a doctor out on the East Coast called Mark Pucazella and he's written uh, a couple running books um, and he frequently lectures at, at our sports medicine conferences and that. But I think he has probably my most used and favorite analogy to this. And it essentially says that when you're running, if you're not using your big toe, it's essentially like trying to hammer in a nail without using your thumb. So if you think about it, it can be done, but it's not very efficient. You certainly don't have as much strength. And so, you know, that's not a good way for your foot to try and function. So um, I think that's one of my favorite analogies and I use it kind of time in and time out, but um, those, are, those are the big ones in terms of injury prevention. Wow, those are fantastic, fantastic ideas. I couldn't agree more. Uh, a couple of the highlights that I took away from that. It was interesting to hear you take on orthotics because I feel the same way. Um, earlier in my career, I used to give, uh, I used to do a lot of fitting of orthotics and doing biomechanical foot evaluations and got a lot of patients in orthotics. Now, as I've evolved as a clinician, I definitely am recommending them a lot less, um, only in times where we are addressing all the other areas that you spoke about, mobility, um, intrinsic foot strength, and you know hip stability, and then going more to that orthotic. Because what I did find over the years, and even myself personally, so I run in orthotics, mm -hmm. and what I've kind of found even during COVID when I was doing home workouts for three months in my house with my mall axe and my bucket of bricks, um, I was actually working out barefoot because in the gym, I never could work out barefoot. So I figured, Hey, now is a good time to try this barefoot thing out. And we're not even going to go down the barefoot running route, uh, but for strength training and, and training and exercising, I think there is a benefit to using those intrinsic foot muscles to stabilize your foot. And especially if you're doing training on one leg, like we talk about so much on this uh, podcast. And I definitely saw the benefit where I was actually able to wean out of my orthotics for my strength training. So mm -hmm. now with going back to the gym, I've been in my sneakers without orthotics and doing my strength training without getting any shin splints, some posterior tib tendinopathy that I used to get chronically yeah. and just feeling that achy feeling in my lower legs um, or even piriformis syndrome um, yeah. from my overpronation. And so I, I, I completely agree um, about orthotics that they can be helpful, but only pick specific spots and kind of the right patient like you spoke about. And if you do have a quote unquote normal foot type and you're not on the extremes of that overly pronated or flat foot person or the chandelier shaker, the uh, big rigid, rigid um, foot type uh, that, you know, you can probably get by without orthotics. And I think that's definitely a shift in um, some of the thinking um, from earlier in my career. 
And then recovery too. I can't stress that enough, especially doing some of the run coaching that now that I'm working on with runners is the importance of that recovery. And some runners, you know, and I know the run streak thing is like popular, especially with COVID. It became really popular um, where I feel like a lot of people got into these run streaks and was like, I'm going to run 60 days, 90 days in a row. And you know, I, I agree with Liz that your body needs the time for recovery and it's important for everything. Like she had mentioned mentally, but then physically for our muscles, for our tendons, our joints, um, as well as our bones. So for tonight's topic, it is so important to allow that recovery and don't think of it as a negative that you are. So in all of my training plan with my runners, I work with, I don't put rest day in the box. I put recovery day allow your body to actually recover from the hard runs that you did the days before. So you can get after it the next day or, you know, two days later. So I think just changing that mindset and not feeling guilty to take that recovery day, because your body definitely does need that. And then the mobility stuff, I can go on for days. I'm not going to, because you've already dropped so much knowledge here tonight. I'm going to keep this short, but I think If you guys have been listening to any other episodes, you know what a big fan of mobility as well as the big toe joint. So Liz, you've dropped like so much knowledge here. This has been like a con ed course for me. I've loved every moment of it. I hope those who are on loved it. We did get a couple of questions. I just want to give one because I have a feeling some other folks are thinking about this. Um, Jolene asked, so how can you tell the difference between a stress fracture and tendonitis? So... That's where we go back to that kind of like pinpoint tenderness um, and over bone. So typically when you're talking about a tendon, it'll typically course kind of along, if you kind of know where that tendon is going, it'll course along that tendon and whatever motion that that is responsible for. So example, that big posterior tibial tendon, bring back my foot again. It comes along the inside, around the inside of your ankle and attached on the bottom of your foot. And it's responsible for plantar flexing your foot and rolling it in. So if those are the motions that cause pain and you feel like it's weaker, that's typically going to be more of a tendonitis. A lot of times too, with tendonitis, um, what I'll see is that people have a lot of pain initially when they start running. And then as they kind of get going, like, oh, it kind of feels a little bit better. Um, It's improving and it feels pretty good. And I can kind of run through it up to a certain point. And then it kind of irritates it again after um, so typically you have more diffuse pain, um, pain along the muscle or the course of a tendon, uh, pain with certain motions for whatever that is responsible for versus just that pinpoint tenderness um, over a bone that'll get worse as you run. Nice. So hopefully, Jolene, that made uh, some sense to you. And I know a lot of you are thinking that um, and how you tell the difference between those. So hopefully that was helpful for you. So Liz, I am sure that a lot of runners who are listening to this learned a lot of information and you are a wealth of knowledge and thank you so much for coming on. But if others would like to learn more about what you do or how they can get in touch with you or get in touch with your practice, how, what is the best place for them to reach you? Yeah. So like I said, I'm at Northern Illinois foot and ankle specialist outside of Chicago. Um, but you know, I, I'm really open. Anyone can email me. Uh, my email is Dr. Bondi. So D-R-B-O-N-D-I at IllinoisFoot.com. I'm also on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. I don't have a great presence on Instagram, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. So any of those ways, um, I'm a little bit quicker with emails than I probably am with Facebook messages or LinkedIn messages, but I, I do respond to all of them as they kind of come in. So you know, feel free to connect with me any way um, you want and uh, whatever you want to talk about. I'm, I'm always open to it. Yeah. So if any of you guys are in around the Chicago area, I would highly recommend you go in for an evaluation if you are feeling any um, foot pain, because I really, really enjoyed your outlook on how you treat runners and looking at the whole chain and not just the foot. If you guys are listening to the podcast, please just copy that link, go in, you know, on Apple iTunes or on Spotify, copy the link, send it to a runner friend of yours who's been complaining of, you know, some foot pain just so they can get the appropriate treatment. Make sure, you know, if it sounds like they do have something that is going on that we talked about tonight, then they can hopefully go in, go see a a running medical professional in their local area and get an evaluation so they can get 
treatment because we talked about the negatives. Just recapping, if you just jumped on here and you're catching this now, uh, Dr. Bondi did did drop a ton of knowledge regarding stress fractures as far as what are stress fractures, what are the signs and symptoms, how do you know if you have a stress fracture, what's the prognosis, so how long does it take to heal, as well as what is the treatment, and then how do we prevent them? And she got in-depth. This was a really, really in-depth presentation that I greatly, greatly appreciate um, you taking the time, uh, Liz. I appreciate all of that. My last question is usually how we finish our episodes is if there is one misconception about running and foot pain that you would like to share with our audience, what would that be? I think the biggest one is uh, running shoes do not cause injuries. <laughs> Everyone always blames the running shoes. Uh, there's zero research, good research out there to show that the shoes cause injury. Um, there are certainly certain shoes that are better for certain types of conditions, but uh, don't blame the shoes. It's usually a biomechanical issue, and then the shoe may or may not uh, help the, the matter, but uh, too many times I see people come in and uh, they'll say, oh, well, I've tried changing different shoes like three, four times, and I don't know why it's not working. I wanted to give it a try. So typically, it's not the shoe. See somebody and look at the biomechanics and the root of the issue. I love it. I love it. I just had a runner in here the other day and same thing and I and blamed it on the shoes. And I said, well, why do you think it is the shoes, yeah. right? If you've had this pain for so long, um, but I think it is a, uh, I think it's human nature, right? We all want the quick fix. And if it's the shoes, that means I could just go out and buy a different pair of shoes mm -hmm. and cure the problem. So I think that's a, a great tip. And thank you for listening. Those on the podcast or the Spark Your Training YouTube channel, which you can find many of the exercise that Liz talked about today, as far as ankle mobility, hip mobility. I have a ton of free resources right there. Check out the playlist. If you want hip exercises, ankle exercises, it's all for you there in our Spark Your Training YouTube channel. Remember every Monday night at 8 p.m., we go live within the Healthy Runner Facebook group. So keep us in mind on your schedule and get your questions answered. So thank you again, Liz. We really appreciate your time tonight. No, thank you. I really appreciate you guys having me. Um, it was a lot of fun. I always love talking about this stuff. So, And we appreciate it. So thank you guys again. Remember, stay active, stay healthy, and just keep running. Until next time. Hey, wait a minute. Just to let you guys know, much of what you heard on this episode is delivered live within our Healthy Runner free Facebook group. So head over to there to request to join our community in which you will have access to the video version of this episode and so many bonus features, including blog article references and YouTube video links, as well as me answering your specific running related questions. Also, we are closing in on 50 reviews on iTunes, which I am super pumped about given we're only six months into this podcast journey together. So to help me get there, the first thing you need to do is you have to subscribe to the sucker, whether it is Apple iTunes that you're listening to this or whatever platform you are on. The next thing is make sure you leave a review. I love to hear what you have to say and I read all of them and it means a lot to me. The last thing, guys, is take a screenshot of whatever episode you're listening to and put it on your stories on Instagram and tag me. That's at SparkYourTraining. If you do this, I will repost it so you'll get a bump, I'll get a bump, and most importantly, we will share this information with a lot more runners because that is the goal, guys. We want to get this information in front of as many runners as possible to help them be healthy and stay on the road doing what they love. So take a screenshot. Share it on Instagram stories and tag me in it. Let's try and get to 50 reviews on the podcast. Thanks for listening.